Glory to Jesus Christ, Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish presents Light of the East, a program revealing how the Eastern Catholic Churches have nourished the Roman Catholic Churches and today's world in profound ways through their history, traditions, mysteries, and spirituality. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loya, pastor of Annunciation of the Mother of God Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois, and this is the story of the Eastern Churches, an inspiring story of faith courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the Light of the East. Light of the East is also supported by the iconography of Father Thomas J. Loya. Father Loya's iconography for your prayer and home devotion may be obtained by going to MorningstarBooksAndGifts.com That's MorningstarBooksAndGifts.com Then click on the Art and Decorative link and click on Icons in the drop-down or call 630-629-1720 Morningstar Books and Gifts 28 West St. Charles Street, Lombard, Illinois And by EasternChristianMedia.com A broadband network for you to learn more about the Eastern Catholic Churches. That's EasternChristianMedia.com Glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya, and this is Katie Gullis with me here once again. Glory to Jesus Christ, Katie. Glory to him forever, Father Tom. And this is indeed a glorious day because, boy, this is a, like a triple whammy day, but there's one of the triptychs here of the, of the triple whammy that takes precedence because today is the Feast of the Annunciation. It's multi-layered for us, especially as members of Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Church, so it's real exciting for Katie and I because it's our parish feast day. But also, it's interesting because this feast day is so significant, especially in the Byzantine liturgical calendar, that it kind of takes precedence over everything, because it often fall, it will always falls within Lent. And it's always kind of fun, isn't it, Katie, liturgically? <laughs> yeah, a little fun and interesting. Not quite as interesting as the year when it fell on Good Friday. I'm sure that had <laughs> canters and everybody pulling their hair out. Yeah, it's either a liturgical nightmare or if you really like to get into that kind of complexity, it's a, it's a real uh, fun thing liturgically for our liturgists. You know, I'm glad they take care of writing what we call the tipicons, in other words, of the, the what-to-do book for us pastors. I just, mean, we basically know. Yeah, but, just give me the page numbers and yeah, I'll sing whatever okay. you want me to. <laughs> yeah, the Feast of Annunciation is, of course, the feast of when Angel Gabriel came to the Virgin Mary. And it can be celebrated, observed either as a feast day of Christ, because it's really his conception, in a sense, his, his conception in the womb of, of the Virgin Mary through the Holy Spirit. So it can be seen as a Christ event, but also as a Marian event or event of the Theotokos, the Mother of God. But actually, any time you celebrate or observe anything of the Mother of God, it's also an affirmation of something about Christ and vice versa. But the emphasis in the calendar of the Eastern churches is on the Mother of God. This is primarily a Marian feast, although certainly carries with it a Christological theme of, of great significance. In fact, it's so great, it does take a certain precedence. As you mentioned, even if it happens on Good Friday, and today it's happening on Sunday, and also what would have been the fifth Sunday of Lent, which is the Sunday of St. Mary of Egypt. In it's the my favorite Byzantine. Lenten Sunday. Yes, uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> so St. Mary kind of gets bumped for, for today. Okay. <laughs> 
And even the resurrection is there, but it's, you know, because it's Sunday, we always celebrate the resurrection, but it's also kind of alongside the Annunciation. So it's almost like um, Jesus is telling us that, you know, hey, it's mom, you know, so let's, you know. know, (laughs) Happy Mother's Day, Mary. Yeah, pull out all the stops for mom. (laughs) It's kind of like that liturgically. So it's a beautiful feast. And before we get to more of the Feast of Annunciation during this, still within the season of Lent, I have a letter from a listener, and he's written to us before. He wrote to us again. He's Nicholas, and then he is serving some time in prison. He's in California, and we like to keep certain things sort of confidential, so we don't give a lot of information out. Let's just say that his name is Nicholas, which it is, and he's in California. But he's written us a couple letters, and one of them, he has a very good question, a very interesting question. And the question is, is this. First of all, he asked me, he says he's Greek Orthodox, and he asked me, what steps do I have to take, if any at all, to be in union with Rome? So he's interested in unity between the Orthodox and the Catholic Church, and currently in prison, he does worship in the, I guess, in the, with the Catholic services, because that's what, apparently what is available for them. But he asked me two questions, basically, is how to become Catholic if you are Orthodox? And basically, it's really simple. It's simply just all you do is recite the creed, you know, you know publicly. And just say that you accept the Pope of Rome. You do believe that he is the head of the church. And that's it, basically. Because the reason why it's so simple is because the Orthodox Church and the Eastern Catholic Churches, especially the Greek Orthodox Church and the Byzantine Catholic Church, are just about identical. The Eastern Catholic Churches, and particularly the Byzantine Catholic Churches, came from the Greek Orthodox Church. And so we have the same liturgical spiritual heritage, the same feast days, everything. The only, the main, the biggest difference, and there, there are some, but the, the biggest, most significant difference for our discussion here is the fact that the Greek Orthodox Church have their own patriarch, as do most all other Orthodox churches have their own patriarchs. But the Eastern Catholic churches, some of which have their own patriarchs, nonetheless still ultimately have the Pope of Rome as their, in a sense, you might say, supreme head. And that's probably the largest difference between the Greek Orthodox Church and the Byzantine Catholic Church is that we are in full communion with the Pope of Rome, and he is basically our patriarch, so to speak. So those are some of the differences. I know I'm simplifying it a bit, but for our discussions and for our time limit here in Light of the East, I think hopefully that that will suffice. Now, the second question, another very significant one from Nicholas from California, is, is this. He said that recently in reading The Essential Catholic Survival Guide by Catholic Answers, their claim is that the East final break did not come until the 1450s. And I'll quote them here. Quote, It's a popular myth that the schism dates to the year 1054, and that the Pope and the Patriarch excommunicated each other at that time. But they did not. The Patriarch refused to have further dealings with the legates sent by Pope Leo IX. Eventually, Humbert lost patience and laid a bull of excommunication against Cellularius on the altar of the Church of the Holy Wisdom. Sariaris and his synod retaliated by anathematizing Humbert, but not the Roman Catholic Church as such. The validity of the bull is questioned because Pope Leo IX was already dead at that time. Now he's quoting there again from the Essential Catholic Survival Guide by Catholic Answers. And Nicholas says, I seem to be unable to get a sure answer regarding the split, and from what I gather, it was lifted in 1967. The Pope and Patriarch of Constantinople lifted their mutual anathemas. Definite progress, but not a full unity. This issue has and will continue to be in my prayers. Well, thank you, Nicholas. They're in our prayers, too. I'm glad you are praying as well, as we all should be praying for this unity of the body of Christ. You know, that's the great scandal before the church, is that the body of Christ is split into many places, actually, unfortunately. Largely, though, the big split is between the eastern and western lungs, as John Paul II would call them. Now, to answer the question here, 
There were actually a, a number of what you might call schisms throughout history between the East and the West. And what happened basically was it was a relatively happy marriage, you would say, between the East and the West, and like between a man and woman, you know, marriage. But as they grew in their own identities over time, they began to develop certain sort of strange or misunderstandings of each other. And this resolved, of course, in different tensions. And as always, there's the battle for who is supreme, you know, the power thing. You know, they're bringing that, the fallen side of the human element into it. You cannot discount that. That has a lot to do with this. Yes, there were differences and misunderstandings in their theologies as both theologies developed. The West developed along lines of trying to explain a lot of the dogma through rational reasoning and so on. And the East emphasized more the mystical and the liturgical aspects of the faith, which is fine. These, are, these were the geniuses, the respective geniuses of both churches. They really were not intended or should not have been sources of tension. But as sometimes happens, they became sources of tension. And eventually the tensions grew to certain points, at certain points in history they reached certain peaks, and there was what we might call uh, schisms. There was actually, in a sense, more than one schism. However, the most particular, the most prominent schism was, in fact, as you just heard me read, in 1054 AD, when the Roman Catholic Pope excommunicated Michael Cellularius, who was the patriarch of Constantinople at the time. And again, this came as a result of a lot of just multiple tensions. Both sides, in a sense, you want to call it blame. Both sides were to blame. The Easterners, you know, the Orthodox churches, were not treating the Roman Catholic Church fairly and in many ways unkindly. At the same time, there was always that threat of Roman imperialism, Rome sort of exerting its superiority over the East and making them feel like they were second-rate. So those were some of the fundamental tensions that were raging for centuries and still are, actually. And so the patriarch excommunicates Cellularius in 1054 AD. Cellularius responds with anathema, but then came some other attempts at reunion. We fast forward now to the 13th century and also the 14th century. There were a couple of councils, the first being Lyons, the other one is Florence. But these councils never really took, especially on the grassroots level. And so in one sense, you could say that that's when the schism as such, the complete break happened. I guess you could say it that way if you want to pinpoint it. But being the Easterner that I am, we're very kind of reticent about pinpointing things. We look at certain things that are significant or prominent, but we tend to look at things in sort of a continuum and in kind of a very integrated way. So I think that the argument is exactly when this happened, when this schism actually happened, is probably, at least from my perspective, not really worthwhile. It's more worthwhile to say that there were, in a sense, a number of schisms, growing tensions, and there were certain spikes in, in that process, one of those spikes being 1054 AD. So if you want to say that it didn't happen exactly in 1054 AD, that's okay too. So you see, either way, we're both, we're all right and we're all wrong in a sense. <laughs> in other words, it was a process with certain spikes, but it finally did happen where the two were no longer in communion with each other. And yes, what happened was, eventually, thankfully, 1967, Pope Paul VI and Athenagoras lifted the mutual anathema. So there was a kind of a, a progress in mutual unity and ecumenism, but much needs to be done. We'll talk more about this when we return. I'm Father Thomas Loy here with Katie Gullis on Light of the East. Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion, and to tell the story of the eastern lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support. 
In order to keep Light of the East on the air, you can make a donation now by going to ByzantineCatholic.com. That's ByzantineCatholic.com. Click on the radio button and then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. The best candidate for marriage is the very person who would be a good candidate for monasticism. And the best candidate for monasticism would be the very person who would be a good candidate for marriage. I'm Father Thomas J. Loy with a Theology of the Body moment for the Tabor Life Institute. Celibacy and marriage are not opposed to each other. They're actually two sides of the same coin. Marriage and celibacy are both choices to love, to make a gift of self, to live spousally. Happy marriages are those which have the element of the monastic in them, prayer, discipline, dying to self, and a sense of belonging ultimately to God. A celibate is happiest when he or she lives their celibacy spousally, making a gift of self to God and to others. The married couple reminds the celibate of the spousal dimension of his or her celibacy. The celibate reminds the married couple of the sacramental nature of their marriage. To find out more about the theology of the body, visit TaborLife.org. TaborLife.org. You're listening to Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. You're listening to the choirs of Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish under the direction of Timothy Woods in Homer Glen, Illinois. This is the music you hear on Light of the East and is sung during the sacred liturgy at Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish. All we ask is a donation of $15 or more, which includes shipping and handling, to Annunciation Parish for each Theosis CD. Send a check made out to Annunciation Parish at 14610 Wilcook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. And may God grant you... Welcome back to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya here with Katie Goulis. And if you're listening to our first half, hopefully it wasn't too heavy for you or complicated. We're squeezing a lot of facts and dates into a short time. As I mentioned, just to kind of reiterate and summarize once again, we were talking about when exactly did the Great Schism happen between East and West? Well, it was sort of an ongoing thing with specific times of what we might call spikes, spikes in that process, an unfortunate process. And one of those most significant spikes was in 1054 AD. So if we want to look at times when, other times when this actually happened, we can say the split actually happened, or if we want to look at 1054 AD, in my mind, in my research, taking it all together, either way is fine. It's unfortunate. The bottom line is the whole thing is very unfortunate, and we're trying to pray and work towards unity once again, as is our listener, Nicholas, who presented this question to us to begin with. So thank you very much, Nicholas. Now you've been listening to the music of the Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish Choir on this Feast of Annunciation, the Mother of God. 
And you're listening in particular to what is the Byzantine Ruthenian version of the Hail Mary. We call it the Bohorodico Divo, which is a Slavonic term, and you're hearing that it's sung in Slavonic. It's a very beautiful piece, isn't it, Katie? One of our favorites. The, but that is basically our Hail Mary, our Ave Maria. And we're playing it for you because this is the feast of the Mother of God, of Annunciation, and it's also our patronal feast day of our parish, Annunciation. And speaking of the Annunciation, even though we're amidst Lent, we have this joyful sort of interruption with the Annunciation. There is an interesting technique that we use during some of these liturgical moments, and especially this one. It's a liturgical dialogue that takes place between some of the principal characters. Now, you see this occurring, for instance, on January 6th, when we celebrate the Theophany or the baptism of Jesus Christ. You'll see a dialogue between John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. And this dialogue, like everything else we do liturgically, is basically a liturgical dramatization of the theology, the significance of the event. And Katie's going to give us a little sample of that. This is from the Matin service, and you can hear the back-and-forth dialogue between the angel Gabriel and the mother of God. The angel said, With great joy I cry out to you, incline your ear and listen to me as I tell you of the conception of God without seed. For you, O most pure one, have found favor with the Lord, which is unknown to any other woman. And the mother of God replies, Help me to understand the meaning of your words, O angel. How can what you say come to pass? Tell me clearly, how shall I, who am a virgin, conceive? How shall I become the mother of my creation? The angel says, It appears to me that you think I am deceiving you, and I rejoice to see your prudence. But take courage, O lady, for wondrous mysteries are easily accomplished when God so wills. And the mother of God responds, No longer is there a prince from the line of Judah, but the time is at hand for Christ, the hope of the Gentiles to appear. Do explain to me how I, a virgin, shall bear him. And the angel explains, O virgin, you wish that I would tell you the manner of your conceiving, but that is beyond all comprehension. The Holy Spirit shall overshadow you, and through his power these things shall come to pass. The mother of God says, When Eve, my mother, listened to the beguilement of the serpent, she was cast out of paradise. Therefore I am afraid of your strange greeting, and I am cautious lest I should fall. But the angel reassures her, I was sent as the messenger of God to reveal to you the divine will. Why do you fear me, O most pure one? Rather, it is I who fear you. Why do you stand in awe of me, O lady? It is I who stand in reverent awe of you. Well, you can see from there, and it does go on, and there's so many rich liturgical texts, but you can see the technique that's used oftentimes in the Byzantine liturgical worship of this kind of poetic drama, this dialogue. Now, also another technique that is used, especially during this Day of the Feast Annunciation, is a little service, which is really part of the, the Matin service, called the Akathist service, the Akathist to the Mother of God. And in this service, what we do is we sort of go through Scripture, and we pull out of Scripture every phrase and paraphrase we can possibly find and, and sort of gather up that describes the Virgin Mary. It's basically considered to be the Byzantine version of the rosary, as it were, but it's a little bit different. It's not used with, it doesn't use beads. It basically uses a liturgical service, and it uses these verses. And what you just heard Katie read, remember, in our church, it would be chanted to a very beautiful chant. All of our prayers are chanted. Our chant is our prayer. Our prayer 
is our chant. And the chant is ancient, traditional for each Eastern church, and we do not use instruments, only the, the human voice, and led by cantors who are schooled and learned and experienced in the chant or choirs. In fact, Katie is the daughter of one of our venerable cantors at Annunciation Church. In fact, your father just celebrated 40 years of cantoring. Yep, and he's a young man. Yeah, he's, he's younger only, than me. <laughs> he's only 52. He just turned 52. So he's been a cantor since he was 11. So it goes to show you how long he's been doing it. And uh, he's very, very dedicated. And it's, uh, a real, it's a real skill. It's a real dedication. It's a real calling. In fact, in the Byzantine church, if you want to translate who the cantor is today, especially if you are a Latin Catholic, you may be familiar with the term, of course, the director of religious education. See, the cantor was the one next to the priest in the Eastern churches, especially in the village parishes, who was the most knowledgeable about the faith. And the reason why is because he was so knowledgeable and steeped in the liturgy. And the liturgy itself, especially in the Eastern churches, by nature, is very didactic. It's very pedagogical. In other words, it, it teaches what we believe. So if you pray the liturgy, especially as thoroughly as a cantor would, to know all the services, all the liturgical texts, like the ones you just heard Katie reading, you're going to know your theology. You're going to know your catechism. So the DRE in Byzantine churches was basically the cantor. And even to this day, they are probably the, among the most knowledgeable next to the priest. And actually, nowadays, you've got lay people who are very knowledgeable as well because they're very educated in our theology, many people, I'm proud to say. But he still is, has a place of great prominence in our church today. Now, here's a few samples Katie will read. And again, these would be chanted by people like her father, <laughs> with the people joining in, of these poetic verses from what we call the Akathist service. Rejoice, O you, through whom joy will shine forth. Rejoice, O you, through whom the curse will disappear. Rejoice, O restoration of the fallen Adam. Rejoice, O redemption of the tears of Eve. Rejoice, O peak above the reach of human thought. Rejoice, O depth, beyond even the sight of angels. Rejoice, for you have become a kingly throne. Rejoice, for you carry him who carries all. Rejoice, O star who manifests the sun. Rejoice, O womb of the divine incarnation. Rejoice, O you, through whom creation is renewed. Rejoice, O you, through whom the creator becomes a babe. Rejoice, O bride and maiden ever pure. So, you see, in the Eastern Church, it's like we're stumbling and fumbling to try to find enough words, enough poetic imagery to give proper honor to people like the Mother of God, in this case, on the Feast of Annunciation, or in other feast days to Jesus Christ. And even so, it seems inadequate for us. So we have just so many poetic verses as a way of trying to find a way to adequately express our love, our faith, and the depth and significance of the theological or doctrinal, the dogmatic significance of this feast or a feast of Jesus Christ. Since I've been mentioning our chant and our liturgy and our theology, and on such incredibly rich feast days as today, sometimes it's better just to let the liturgy, the chant, speak for itself. So we'll conclude our program today by letting you listen to the chant of the Byzantine Church as we sing our version of the Hail Mary, the Ave Maria, called the Bohorodito Divo. I'm Father Thomas Loyal here with Katie Goulas on Light of the East.
Thank you for listening. Next week, we will return to the light of the East. To find out more about Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish, visit our website, byzantinecatholic.com, where you will also find an archive of all of our programs. In order to continue this program with its mission of Christianity's reunion, we need your support with a donation. Any amount would be a blessing. Please make out a check to Light of the East Radio and send it to Light of the East, 14610 Will Cook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. That's Light of the East, 14610 Will Cook Road, spelled W-I-L-L-C-O-O-K, Road, Homer Glen, Illinois. From the light of the east, a new dawn of unity is in sight. God bless you, go with God, and may God bless you and grant you many happy years. (laughs) 